This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. Welcome to the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. I'm Matthew of CastingAcross.com, where I explore the quarry and culture of fly fishing. Less than a decade after he accepted Robert E. Lee's surrender at Appomattox, Ulysses S. Grant signed a law making Yellowstone the first national park in the United States. In the following decades, more landmarks and wild places were protected by the federal government. In 1916, Woodrow Wilson signed the National Park Organic Service Act. With that action, the USA now had an agency that would, quote, promote and regulate the use of the federal areas known as national parks, monuments, and reservations here and after specified by such means and measures as conform to the fundamental purpose of the said parks, monuments, and reservations, which purpose is to conserve the scenery and natural and historic objects and the wildlife therein, and to promote and provide for the enjoyment of the same in such manner and by such means as will leave them unimpaired for the enjoyment of future generations. Unquote. That was a mouthful, and a little bit bureaucratic, but what does that mean? For fly fishers, it's good that the, quote, Wildlife therein includes fish. Now, our National Park Service includes locations as diverse as the breadth of our country, whether it be famous rivers in Yellowstone, brook trout creeks in the Great Smoky Mountains, or the wild mangroves along the Everglades, anglers should be heading out to their land. And make no mistake, this is your land. You might balk at the fact that there is an entrance fee, but it's still your land. Now, national parks are certainly mixed-use resources. Depending on where you go, there may be a lot of other people. However, there are plenty of opportunities to get away from crowds and into hidden treasures. The crowds and infrastructure often translate into better overall enforcement and stewardship. Federally regulated parks generally get more attention as they are under the scientific and budgetary microscope. Practically, parks provide great access. This means maps, parking, and trails that are spelled out and approachable for anyone. More importantly, anyone can enjoy a park. National park trips are perfect for mixing a little fishing into family vacation. 
There are dozens of things for all ages and interests to enjoy. When the angler has a free hour, there's probably a decent spot to cast fly. And the aforementioned resources available also offer a diversity of activities. Hiking, museums, ranger programs, they can fill the hot middays or rainy mornings when you don't want to be out on the water. So, plans to visit a national park. While there may be other, more premier fly fishing spots in the vicinity, we're going to talk about why parks provide something unique and special. We're going to talk about why you should enjoy them, because we are the generation that our forefathers were considering when they established, quote, such means as will leave them unimpaired for their enjoyment. That is the legacy of the national park system. And there are hundreds of nationally recognized sites across the country, and so many of them have something swimming in or adjacent to them. So today, this is why you should fish a national park. Now, where do you live? What is the closest national park? If you had to get out your stuff today and go to a national park, where would it put you? For me, I think the closest national park, like legit national park, is Acadia. And in fact, I was there not even 24 hours ago. I was up on the coast of Maine, and there are angling opportunities there. There are brook trout in the small creeks, there are lake trout and other fish in the ponds, and there are striped bass on the coastline. Might be getting a little late in the season for that, but I'm sure there's some that are still around. Here's the thing I did not do anything besides putting my rod, net, and flies in my van before I left and then getting them out after I got home. We just didn't have time. We did all the sites. It was the first time I'd ever been there. My wife had been there, but my boys and I had never been there. So we wanted to see all the stuff and just get out into the island and see everything that Acadia had to offer. We were down on the water. We were up on the top of mountains. We were deep in the woods. We were doing all sorts of stuff. And I saw places that inevitably held fish. Having my polarized glasses on, I was constantly spying the, the water to try to see if I could see any signs of brookies, seeing I could see anything move on the surface, watching bait skip across the surface as I was looking out um, out onto the bays, into the sounds. So there's fish there. I just didn't get a chance to fish for anything there. And truth be told, the, the kind of the general consensus is if you're going to be driving four hours from Boston, there are many more better fishing locations that you could drive to than Acadia National Park. But that doesn't mean that it's not a worthwhile use of time. I just didn't have the time this trip. It, had our campsite been closer to, to a creek, I would have done it. Had uh, we just had more free time, I would have taken some of my boys over and we would have tried to catch a brook trout just to say we caught a brook trout on Acadia. It just wasn't in the cards, and that's okay. But that's the park that's closest to me. That being said, there's other uh, sites that are managed by the Department of the Interior that fall under that national park umbrella that are even closer. I'm only maybe 15 minutes away from another historic site, and it's a historic site that I have caught fish in. It's a, a textile uh, and industry-related historical uh, monument, and I have caught fish in the canals that are in that nationally uh, supervised uh, park service property. And it's right here. And it is something that is mine. It's ours. It's, it's accessible. But that's usually not what we're thinking of when we're thinking of spending time in a national park. We're thinking of, of places like Yellowstone and like Shenandoah and like the Everglades. Uh, some of these parks that are the marquee spots 
that are worth uh, going to for all sorts of activities, as I mentioned earlier, the cultural significance, the ecological significance, as well as just the general recreation that they provide. And it is always, always, always a good idea to bring that rod with you. So I've made other podcasts where I've talked about why you should fish Shenandoah National Park, uh, why you should fish Rocky Mountain National Park, but this is a little bit more general. Why fishing in national parks should be something that you have your uh, your your mindset on. A couple of, of weeks ago, um, when we were talking about kind of setting goals and how sometimes they're arbitrary, a great goal would be to catch a fish in every national park that you have visited. I mean, that it's really silly and there's really no value in it, except that'd be a fun little challenge. And as I alluded to earlier, there are always waters that are, if not inside of national parks, immediately adjacent to them. And if there's water, there's a very good chance there's going to be fish. Again, think about some of the premier national parks. Yellowstone, fishing. Yosemite, fishing. Rocky Mountain, fishing. Uh, Hawaii volcanoes, maybe not like on the volcano itself, but around that area, fishing. Grand Canyon, fishing. Hot Springs, again, maybe not super accessible, but there is fishing in the area. Uh, Everglades, Mammoth Cave, Virgin Island. You, you go just down this list of, of all of the popular national parks, and there's going to be fishing around there. Dry Tortuga is probably the most difficult park to get to if you're in the contiguous United States. And there's fish, there's tarpon all over the place. And so it's not a, a, a draw necessarily for some of these parks. It's not going to be why you go to them is to catch fish. But if you're there, how could you mix that in? How do you get into that mindset of thinking, okay, I'm going to add fishing as a component of this. So what might you do? So here's the first thing. Figure out the fishing that is the essence of that park. So my example earlier with Acadia was brook trout and some of these small mountain streams. Now, these fish are kind of cool because they have the potential to be salters, or that is brook trout that move from freshwater to saltwater, which is just remarkable if you think of these small six or eight inch brook trout that go from living in these tiny wooded creeks and find their way out at different times of the year and at different tides out into these wild oceans where they're the same size as all the bait fish that, that all of the larger fish in the ocean are eating. But it's just a cool thing to be able to think about that fish and its place in the ecosystem. It's a fish that is uniquely Acadia. Now, the exact same fish as you move down south, you get down into the Shenandoah, and you have these fish that are thriving up on these ridge lines that were once a sustenance fish, at least n not not wholly, but they were they made up a good part of the diets of the people that lived in the Shenandoah region. Um, and that's that's a really fascinating story. A little bit sad, a little bit somber, but a fascinating story about all the people that had to be relocated. But just the area of the Shenandoah uh, and, and that part of the Mid Atlantic and how so close it is to kind of the birthing of our nation and our capital, yet yeah, this mountain ridge where you could see Washington, D.C. on a clear day uh, and had been so damaged by mining, by um, by lumber, uh, and by acid rain, now has thriving brook trout fisheries all up and down, and it's connecting us to the people that came before us, and it is a testament to our restoration work. 
But then you go to a place like Yellowstone. And as we talked about cutthroat trout a couple weeks ago, it, you have the Yellowstone River cutthroat and how it is is being protected. And it is being, uh, they're, they're trying to do all they can do to improve its success as a breeding and fish that is not only for recreation purposes, but in restoring uh, the, the, the wildlife uh, and the, the original species that were in the parks. You think about the Pacific Northwest and in a place like um, Olympic State Park and how you have the steelhead, which are still under all sorts of, of uh, difficult um, ecological and population-based problems, but how they are still there. Then you, you, you consider up in the, the North Woods, whether it be Isle Royale or a park um, like, uh, like Voyagers. Again, another park that's very, very hard to get to. And you, you contemplate that, that classic Northwoods angling and whether it be walleye or trout or, or more recently steelhead and these places that are just very remote and very, very, you know, tied into that image that we have of, of rural, uh, Midwestern, uh, camp life. And so what, what do you want to catch? Do you want to catch a, a, a pike? Do you, do you just want to catch a mess of, of walleye to, to, to fry up? You know, that is as much of a part of experiencing these national parks, because something that I think that we lose sight of sometimes, particularly if we don't visit a lot of national parks, is that what they celebrate is not only the natural aspect of, of these parks. So it's not just the scenic vistas. It's not just the remarkable rock formations. What it also is, is the cultural relationship that we have with some of these parks. Some of the more developed ones, we, we might think of this and, and come to appreciate some things like whether it be uh, bridges or whether it be monuments or things like that. But just the, the relationship, as I was mentioning earlier, when it comes to Shenandoah of how there is this, these, the people that were there and the more and more time you spend and the more and more developments they're making, not necessarily in changing the park, but in adding interpretive aspects to these parks, you get an opportunity to see how people have been here for a long, long time, whether it be in the last few hundred years since colonization, or even the, the, the Native American peoples that were here before, and the people that were before the Native American peoples that the colonists uh, uh, encountered, and how there's always been a relationship with the animals and the people, whether it be the bison, or whether it be the fish, or whether it be the wolves, whatever it might be. And so to be able to catch that fish and actually hold it in a way that you can't hold and eagle or a uh, mountain lion or something like that. It is a very tangible connection to the resource and to the people that have come before. Because again, not everyone that's going to be going into these national parks is going to be fishing. Uh, they're not going to be be having those experiences. And so I'm, I'm not saying it's a better way to be connected with, uh, with, with those that have come before us, but it's a way to do it that is kind of different than maybe seeing a, a bear as you slow your car down to a crawl as you're driving through uh, a, a park, um, you know, like Glacier National Park or something like that, but you're actually in and amongst this 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 ecosystem, and you are engaging in a way that is not only exciting to you because you like angling, but is something that was a lot more normal, uh, even if you re rewind a hundred years, though, and certainly going back to to times when people needed to fish for food. So that's the first thing. Yeah, that's a long first thing, but fishing and being in touch with the fish and the ecosystem that they live in, in these national parks is a great way to kind of get a better picture and immerse yourself in everything that's happening within the park. 
Second is something that I mentioned before, which is it can kind of be a checklist way of thinking about stuff. How have you fished in each park? Now, there's lots of people who they try to collect a magnet at each park, or they like to get a sticker for the back of their RV, or they go to a local brewery, or they buy a t-shirt or something like that. Can you catch a fish in every park? Is that possible? I'm not sure. I, I, I doubt it is based on the fact that there's some very desert-based parks. But a lot of these parks that you can visit, you can be engaged in that way. You can take an opportunity to do that. And in doing so, you will be able to kind of write your story. That's something that the National Park Service really does want people to think about when they go and visit these parks. Um, that might sound a little bit frou-frou, but the fact of the matter is, is that, you know, when I look back at my time in the parks, I think about what did my family and I do? There was countless things to do. Like we spent time in Rocky Mountain National Park and we only scratched the surface. I mean, the fact that there are some of these national parks that we've been to that we've been able to circumnavigate as we've driven or, or even just spend time uh, hiking over large swaths of them uh, because we're on the East Coast and we're going to some smaller uh, nationally park or national park supervised sites, it is atypical. Once you get out west of the Mississippi and even a handful of the bigger parks here on the East Coast, there's just no way you can get around it an entire day. So it is not reasonable or feasible to think that you're going to be able to get a flavor for this a, a park by taking a large swath of it in. What is more reasonable, realistic, and and ultimately a lot more fun is the fact that you are experiencing it in your way. So how does how do you enjoy it? How does your your family enjoy it? So can fishing kind of fill that in? Can fishing be a significant part of that? For me, it is. And for you, it probably is as well. So that's something to consider. Thirdly, and this might sound really pragmatic, but bear with me. Uh, you've, you've paid for these fish. Now, there's a chance that you don't pay a lot of taxes. There's a chance that you do pay a lot of taxes. And even if you do pay a lot of taxes, I'm not sure how many of your pennies can be traced to habitat work that's being done uh, somewhere like, I don't know, the gates of the Arctic, right, for, for protecting uh, n uh, natural resources or, or up in like the Kobuk Valley, you know, these, these parks that have been established up in Alaska. But you've been paying into this great experiment of not just democracy, but also of the National Park Service and the Department of Interior. And we have something unique, something that has been replicated the world over. And so it truly is yours. So this is, as I, as I said before, where people bristle about the fact that there's entrance fees. But that's normal. You pay for everything these days. And, you know, that's kind of the cost of having a very, very large Department of the Interior and a very, very large federal government. You got to pay for it. You're, you're not paying for the land. You're paying for the people that are keeping the land uh, in, a, in a particular way. But I'm not here to necessarily talk about that. But the fact that we have that, that, that you are paying the government a $20 entrance fee or, or an $80 for the entire year is very different than going up to a person and paying them $25 this year and hoping that they let you on next year. So even though prices may, might seem exorbitant, uh, there's a lot of people in a lot of other countries that would be very, very happy to have the opportunities that we have uh, to be able to get on national parks. But th this is yours. This is your heritage. Uh, something that we don't think about very frequently is what we're, we're leaving for, for coming generations. Um, we, we think of that in a very trite way. But as I read the uh, National Park Organic Service Act language 
that was established uh, just over 100 years ago in 1916. Um, that was what they were thinking about. How can we keep this for um, our, our, our children and our children's children and our children's children's children? Um, to, to all of those generations, we are the beneficiaries of that. So to be able to go in there and to enjoy it is fulfilling the purpose of these parks. And as you uh, visit them and as you uh, have best practices and stewardship and utilize them responsibly, then you are perpetuating that for the coming generations also. Um, there, there is something to be said for the fact that if things get used and used well, they are going to persevere. So if things get used and they're used well, things will persevere. Uh, so even when some of these parks just are swamped, and honestly, this 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 last few days up in Acadia, it was a madhouse because the colors were popping and so people were everywhere. At the same time, you know that they are taking care of things. There was all these improvement projects that were going on because they had to, because they were keeping up with it. But they, but for as for every new thing they were building, they were also renovating something that was old. They were restoring something that had been worn down. They were doing lots of work to take things that may have been a little bit foolhardy, and they are essentially admitting mistakes. We put a trail here. We realize it led to erosion. So now we are replanting and we're resoiling and we're trying to make things better. That's great. It's wonderful to see a government agency saying, you know what, we were wrong. And it is going to cost you money, but we are going to try to fix it and make it better. And there's this constant state of learning. And so that's the third thing. It's yours. Use it. Fourth thing, and this just, just came to mind that I was thinking about my time up there. Talk to people. Talk to people who are in the park. They are going to tell you things that you never would have found out from reading a book. These are people who, who as into uh, you, as, as into fly fishing as you are, as into whatever interests you are, you are into. These rangers are into their park. They might not be fly fishers, but they see things and they know things and they are aware of things and they are happy to share it. They, they may be a little bit reserved if they are, are concerned about what you might do to the to the ecosystem. But if you can communicate that you are going to be a responsible steward of the streams and the fish and things like that, you are going to be surprised at what you can find out. And it's also always really interesting to hear people's perspectives about fishing who aren't anglers. And we talked about this again with the greenback cutthroats a few week, weeks ago. Um, to, to hear the kind of regular media talk about cutthroat trout is just fascinating. You get the, a totally different language, totally different perspective, uh, a new sense of awe and wonder that you that is is kind of different from what we get within the fly fishing community. So the same thing is true when you talk to a park ranger or somebody who is in that park all the time as they observe streams and watersheds and fish. So have that conversation. So to review, very loose outline here. Um, first, make fishing part of your national park story. Uh, secondly, uh, use fishing to experience more of that national park. Uh, third, it's yours, so use it. And fourth, have those conversations to see what you might be missing by just coming at it with fly fishing eyes and not with just the eyes of somebody who is always in that park. Do you have a favorite park to fly fish in? Uh, mine is hands down uh, uh, Shenandoah National Park. It's because where I grew up, it's where I learned to fly fish for brook trout. Absolutely love it. If you've listened to the podcast or read Casting Cross for any amount of time, you know that's the case. So I'd love to hear the weird, obscure national park or national historic site or a national monument or anything like that that uh, that you love to fish in. Uh, and you don't have to give me specific spots, but maybe I can rattle some of those off in a coming podcast or or something else that we have on Casting Across in the future. Um, do you want to get more into national parks? Uh, three things to recommend. First of all, Ken Burns National Parks: America's Best Idea documentary. Really good. Uh, 
I would say that it is not super uh, consistent in the types of parks it talks about and the voices that it, it shares, but it's a, still a very good um, a very good resource. And I don't know if it's on Netflix or on Prime or on PBS or whatever, but I'm sure that you have access to it somewhere. Secondly, uh, the National Park Service app. Um, that's actually, I'll, you know what, I'll circle back around to that to make that the recommendation. Uh, why am I recommending another app? Well, I'll get to that here in a second. And thirdly, the America the Beautiful Pass. If you don't like spending money on uh, on going to parks, then this is the way to just uh, buy once, cry once. For $80, you and somebody else get access to everything over the course of the year. It is anything federally managed. So uh, national parks, uh, national wildlife refuges, uh, um national forests, anything where there's like a little box where you got to drop money in that's managed by the federal government or, or a gate station, this park, the American Beautiful Pass, gets you in. And here's here's the other thing. Uh, if you want the same benefit, but you have a kid in fourth grade, you just go to the National Park Service website and you plug in the fact that you have a fourth grader and every fourth grader in our country gets a free uh, National Park Pass for them and their family, which is awesome, especially because I got four kids that are only spaced uh, two years apart. So I only pay $80 every other year, uh, <laughs> but that'll, that'll eventually dry up. But American Beautiful Pass is the way to go if you're visiting just a couple of, of parks. I mean, I get my money's worth just from the wildlife refuges and the national forests that are within, you know, a two-hour drive of me easily. Otherwise, just those would be, I think, like 70 bucks a year. And I'm there for hiking and fishing and doing stuff all the time anyway. All right. This week on castingacross.com, the first article was called First Fly Fishing Plans for 2023. And this is my annual fall article. It's become a fall tradition of talking about the fly fishing show, why I think you should go and what the dates are. So there's, I believe, six stops on the fly fishing show in 2023, starting in January, ending in March. It starts in Marlboro, Massachusetts, and it wraps up in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, with a number of stops across the country uh, in between. But I give three prospective itineraries, very, very general, but they might give you some ideas on what to do on the article called First Fly Fishing Plans for 2023. Wednesday's article is called Rusty Flybox, Maine. So because I was in Maine, I put together a couple things to auto-publish on the Wednesday of this week. And there are two articles and one podcast about the great state of Maine. And in that article, I said, maybe I'll catch a fish. Well, you heard it here first. I did not catch a fish because I did not try to catch a fish. This week's recommendation on the podcast is what I had already mentioned. It is the National Park Service app. So the National Park Service app is super helpful, and it's also a great not waste of time. It's a great uh, time filler. How about that? Uh, when I am trying to fall asleep, I will look at the news on the National Park Service app. And I think I've mentioned that before. Sometimes it's like, you know, who got eaten by a bear? Who got lost in the woods? But there's all sorts of interesting information about upcoming habitat restoration for whether it be for prairies or whether it be for trout streams. But there's also a cool feature on there where you can create lists. Lists could be parks I want to visit, uh, they could be parks that I have visited I want to return to, and it per- could be all the parks that you visited. So actually, on the way home from Acadia, my wife and I went through and just rattled off all the parks we visited. And going through and scrolling and tapping, we realized there's parks that we forgot we've been to. There's there's parks that we've been to back when they were something else. So a great example was uh, Indiana Dunes is a relatively new uh, federally recognized park. I went to as a kid all the time uh, when it was just managed by the state uh, of Indiana. Another one was Congaree uh, State uh, National Park. Uh, I had to have gone within a few months of it going from being a, I guess, a state entity to being a federal uh, entity in South Carolina. 
Um, but just really interesting, lots of information on there, and you can download all the information that's on that app for use offline. So that was very helpful for us in Acadia because the service is incredibly spotty up there. So I was able to download all the information, have maps, have schedules, have all that sort of stuff, and that was accessible even when the uh, internet was not playing nicely with us. So I'll put a link to the National Park Service app on this podcast's page on castingacross.com. Thanks for listening to the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. Please subscribe to your favorite podcast app and then rate the podcast on iTunes. Then head over to castingacross.com for three posts a week on the people, places, and things that go into the pursuit of fish. 